Welcome to Antimatter Pod, a Star Trek podcast where we discuss fashion, feminism, subtext, and subspace, hosted by Annika and Liz. We're back for a break to discuss the woman, the legend, the problematic fave, Kai Win Adami. And we have so much to say about how she has never done anything wrong, ever, in her entire life. Mm-hmm. So we are going to take three episodes <laughs> to cover her rise, her reign as Kai, and her ultimate fate. Thank you, my child. <laughs> First, can I say that I've really missed talking to you on the regular basis, and I'm really glad we're recording again. How was your break? <laughs> My break was amazing. I went into space on the Galactic Star Cruiser. Nice. And that was living a dream. It sounded amazing. Strongly recommend. (laughs) My flatmate has this theory that the 2024 official Star Trek con will be held in the South. And I think it's going to be held on the East Coast. And then we were both like, oh, Florida. So if that's the case, we are going to do... Mission Orlando, we assume. Mission Miami, maybe? And Disney World. So stay tuned. Mission Miami is a terrible idea. Don't even put that out into the video. <laughs> I'm sorry. No, I'm sorry. I don't know any other cities in Florida. I think Atlanta is the oh. southern city that I would expect more than Florida. But... I would also 100% wear a Starfleet uniform to Disney World. <laughs> <laughs> Look, they can't stop you, right? You're not supposed to cosplay Disney characters. That's right. But, but they you never said anything. Disney character. They don't know. I, I dressed as Florida Lacour to go to Epcot one year. There are still a few franchises they don't own yet. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> I caught COVID on my break. I don't recommend it. It was bad. If my voice gives out, that's just like a fun lingering symptom, though my voice used to give out before I had COVID, so maybe that's just a thing I do. But it gave me a lot of time to watch Deep Space Nine. And I really have to say that if you watch only the episodes with Wynn and often only the scenes with Wynn, it is a really amazing series where it's nothing but two women arguing about religion and politics and occasionally some men turn up. Which is not, sadly, true to the whole experience. (laughs) No, it's very different from the main series, but I think better. And I really have to say, one, I have always enjoyed Kai Wynn, but now I completely love her. I cannot argue in seriousness that she has never done anything wrong ever in her entire life, because she very much has. But I think as we go through this trio of episodes, anti-matterport episodes, not Deep Space Nine episodes, we can see how much she makes sense as a character right up until she doesn't. But we'll talk Mm -hmm. about the end later. And I think I like Kira best when she's arguing with Kai Wynn. Yeah, that's what I'm most excited to talk about is the relationship between Kira and Wynn that develops Mm. And it starts in these first episodes. But I'm super excited for part two when we get to <laughs> those episodes. <laughs> because Kira has this very complicated relationship with the religion and the religious leisures of yeah. 
Bajor. And it's one of those things that I am surprised got into the show. <laughs> and <laughs> and uh, it almost feels like it's better because they didn't work on it. But as you say, when you're watching just those episodes and just that progression, then there's something really amazing there. Right. It's like with Ballada in Voyager. She would have a much less compelling arc if they had thought about it for more than five minutes. And in the hands of the prophets, Vedic Wynn's introduction, the season one finale of DS9, is such a great episode. I remember watching it as a kid, as a teenager, and thinking, mm, this is very boring. Oh, the religious person is a bigot. What a surprise. But the mystery, even though I know how the mystery unfolds, I love seeing them work at it. Uh, I love Vedic Wynn's interactions with everyone. I really spent a lot of time wanting to shout at Cisco because I'm sorry, every philosophy is welcome on this station is how you get a Nazi station. But, you know, it was the 90s. We didn't have to think in those terms back then. And I think what I love best about In the Hands of the Prophets is that Win is wrong, but that doesn't mean the Federation is right. Yeah, there's a lot of questions that come up and there's a lot of... It's not as simplistic as it seems. Mm. I think this is another thing where I, I don't, I, I am obviously not a writer on Deep Space Nine and I don't know, I wasn't in the room. I don't know what they were thinking or what they were doing or what they were trying, but it really feels like they had a lot of big concepts that they were working around with and they didn't really dig down into what they were actually doing. And that is messy, but mm. it's also very interesting. Yes. And one thing that struck me through all of Wynne's appearances is that she turns up and asks questions that maybe the writers should have thought about themselves. Questions like, why is this human who has never known the oppression of the occupation the emissary of the prophets? What does Bajor get out of joining the Federation? And why is it happening so soon when they've only been an independent world again for a couple of years? I really wish that they had dug into these questions. I wish we had seen why, what Bajor would gain and what the Federation would gain aside from manifesting its destiny in yet another system. It's really strange, the push. They, sh they should definitely join the Federation. It's It doesn't seem necessary. It doesn't seem to align with the doctrine as expressed in the other shows. Yeah. Which is that we go and explore and we meet new people and we offer them, you know, do you want to do you want to join us or do you want to trade or, you know, what are, what do you want to do with us? It just seems like they're on Bajor and for whatever, I guess it's strategic reasons, but they have this this need for Bajor to come into the Federation folds that doesn't seem actually necessary <laughs> from the point of view of Bajor or from the really the point of view of the Bajorans that are involved. Like Kira, people didn't like her in the beginning because yeah. she was against the Federation. So it's weird that there's this push from the Starfleet side. And I just wonder if they were creating that conflict to create a conflict and drama in their series, or if they actually had something to say about it. I think if they had something to say about it, they would have said it. 
I can infer why the Federation wants Bajor to join as an ally against the Cardassians, their very recent enemies, as a foothold in a region where they don't have much power, as a means of making it easier to rebuild Bajor without that pesky Prime Directive getting in the way, which I think is probably the official reason. But it doesn't really seem all that necessary for Bajor, because we can see the Federation is already helping them. I agree with Win. I think Bajor needs more than five years to stand on its own outside of the Federation. I think after a 50-year totalitarian occupation, they need more like 150 years to rebuild their society. And one of the recurring things we see in Win's episodes is that Bajorans are deeply scarred by the occupation, and particularly for Wynne's generation, they really struggle with how to hold power and how to use it responsibly. And so while she does terrible things, that's why I empathise with her, because this is a woman who has had very few role models. Right, this is my Seska argument of if your entire society is based on Mm. one thing... And that's what you're raised for, and that's what all your mentors say, and that's the only thing that you've ever experienced. How are you supposed to know that it's wrong? Right. And if you've spent 50 years of your life, which Louise Fletcher was about 60 when she first appeared in DS9, so let's assume she was 10 when the Cardassians invaded. So she has grown up under that occupation. She joined a religious order at a time when the Cardassians were repressing all but the most Cardassian-friendly vestiges of their religion. She encourages her order to work with the resistance and do more to save Bajorans, and she ends up spending five years in a labour camp. With all of that, no wonder she is ultra-conservative, not just in a purely theological way, but as a fuck you to the Cardassians who don't want her religion to exist. And... No wonder she is deeply wary of the Federation. And so, on the one hand, engineering a religious dispute to lure her rival onto the station so she can have him assassinated. Look, who among us hasn't? But I will allow that it is not great behaviour. But I really do think she has a point in that here's this school run by a human with no educational qualifications, teaching mostly Bajoran children and teaching them culturally inappropriate science. And the problem is that it's Wynne as this, I don't want to say straw man, but she's much more complicated than that. But it's like, it really was the writers going, hey, there's this conflict about creationism happening in the US. Let's make a story about that. And we don't hear from the less extreme orders of the Bajoran religion who are like, oh yeah, we've got this Vedic who's a scientist. Like, we have these qualified teachers on Bajor. One of them is going to come out and join Keiko to help her teach because Keiko has no qualifications. She's a botanist. And Bajor does have scientists. They've had space travel for 5,000 years. In Florida, there's a teaching shortage because they're making it really terrible to be a teacher in Florida. Mm. And so they are like putting in National Guard members (laughs) as teachers. Was there a botanist shortage? So great idea. (laughs) (laughs) So, I mean, Keiko is, is better than that. Yes, yes. So it actually made me kind of uncomfortable 
watching this episode deeply in in the headspace I am right now in terms of education. I work in education. I care deeply about education for children and public education. And it is not working for anyone. Mm. (laughs) There is no one, no child I know. You know, there's the no child left behind is actually all children left behind. Yeah. (laughs) Because the current system and COVID just exposed this, Mm. but it was all, it it was already broken. And then COVID was just like, Hey, (laughs) now we can't pretend it's not broken anymore. Mm. And yet they are continuing to try. So watching this episode that was about, you know, the ultra religious side saying, you know, you have to teach it this way. And then the scientists saying, well, I believe in science, and so I have to teach it this way. And I was really kind of angry at both sides <laughs> because yeah. I didn't appreciate Keiko and Cisco teaming up to say, you're just wrong. Like, right. it doesn't matter <laughs> that your religion says this. The reality is this. When science, the point of science, and especially the point of the wormhole and the prophets and the entire storyline that goes throughout from emissary to what we leave behind. The point of it is that they don't know. Right. <laughs> and they have to keep trying to figure it out over and over and over again. And that's what science is about. Science is about asking questions, exploring answers, and then starting over and asking questions again. And so this idea that it's so definitely a wormhole (laughs) and it definitely has nothing to do with any religious overtones is really like i prefer thor where they're like science and religion are the same based on their point of view i really didn't like that cisco and keiko were using science as a bat to like knock wind down and and just ignore her point of view entirely And I say that as someone who obviously wants, you know, the religious right to get out of public education in all ways. (laughs) So it's like, it's not like I agree with, with, you know, let's, you know, the religion has to take precedent. Like that's definitely Mm -hmm. wrong. Mm -hmm. But I also think that it's wrong to ignore anything they say and instead of coming up with some way that both are valid right right cisco and keiko are proceeding on the assumption that science is culturally neutral and it's simply not and that's why i think the real solution was to get a bajoran teacher who is both a scientist and a vedic in to work with keiko i think that would have been a much more nuanced and thoughtful approach because as it is the federation is like hey we're dealing with a society that has successfully used terrorism to repel an occupation which threatened to destroy their culture and religion so we're just not going to take that culture and religion into account going forward that won't go wrong that will be fine it's not like the federation isn't built on vulcan religion right (laughs) i don't understand how this particular religion is just no. I appreciate that the Federation has this weird blind spot, but I wish that the writers did not have that blind spot. 
But it's, it's also very much the Federation as America, which is a particularly terrible problem with Deep Space Nine, because it's like, okay, imagine that there's a country called the United States of America, and imagine that for reasons which we don't really need to go into too deeply, they invade another imaginary country called Iraq. And the official reason is that they're going to save the Iraqi people from their totalitarian dictatorship and they're going to bring them civilization and democracy. But then because this imaginary United States of America doesn't really make the effort to understand Iraqi culture and recent history, they end up completely alienating the Iraqis and being driven out. That is kind of what almost happens with Bajor and I cannot pretend it's not the Federation's fault. Yes. My note here is that it's not a problem of the Federation being wrong. It's a problem that the writers think the Federation is right. Yes. Yes. <laughs> and that's the problem. The problem is that the episode is fully on the side of Cisco and Keiko. Mm -hmm. And that is illustrated by the fact that Kaiwin is an assassin and yes. a terrorist. Yes. Yes. <laughs> so, so therefore, she's definitely wrong. Right. And it sets her up for the whole rest of the series that she can never come back from that. She's just always going to be an assassin and a terrorist. Right. It's not enough that she disagrees with Cisco and is an antagonist to him. It's that she is unforgivably evil. And I love that about her. It's great. I forgive her. The prophets forgive her, probably. But it's just... That problem of there is no way to disagree with the Federation without being completely irredeemably evil. And I do think that Deep Space Nine gets better about that. But there were and opportunities. I, I, will say, I will say that Kira is a voice of reason. Absolutely. In this episode, in that there are, I think, two scenes where they say directly to Kira, you know, how can you possibly agree with this mm. crazy lady? And she's like, well, that's my religion too. <laughs> I mean, she almost does do the Thor route of, you know, right. how do you know that your science and my religion aren't the same? And I appreciate that they at least gave that nuance to that character. And I think that it helps that they did actually intentionally write Kira as a certain type of character. Absolutely. And Kira herself is, we learn, quite religiously conservative, enough that she does believe and does agree with Win right up until the whole assassination thing. Which, look, Kira has definitely assassinated people, but not for this reason. And I love that that is the foundation of Kira and Win's relationship that Kira did once agree with and believe in her. Yes. I just want to flag your note here. Science is a religion to a lot of science fiction writers and fans. I think that's very wise. I think that's very insightful. And I think that's why we don't see this criticism of In the Hands of the Prophets so often. And I think that's part of why fandom hates Kai Wynn or Vedic Wynn so very much. Because she is religious and even if she were only moderately religious, even if she were beryl, she's a woman and she's religious and that is bad. Right. And there is so much misogyny in fandom's approach to Kai Win, which is why I suggested this. Oh, hi, Sushi. 
Which is why I suggested this episode in the first place, and now it's ballooned out to three, and I have no regrets. <laughs> she's a very complicated character. She's a well-written and played character in that we almost get too much of her. <laughs> but it doesn't quite go over the edge of, of too much. And they allow her to have that edge. Yes. And to not be... Like, I... Our second episode on Kaiwin, I think, is going to be where I'm going to have the most to say. But I love an ambitious woman. You know, like, Cersei Lannister is one of my favorite characters. And she's terrible. <laughs> there are very few redeeming things to say about Cersei Lannister. But she knows who she is and she knows what she wants. Yes. And she is willing to do whatever she has to to get there. And that is admirable you know, if it were in a man, she'd be an anti-hero. I'm pretty sure Cersei herself makes that observation in one of the books. <laughs> the thing about Wynne's ambition is that she is nakedly ambitious and she is openly political. And then we're mm -hmm. introduced to Vedic Peril, who is a humble gardener. He didn't want to ascend to power. He doesn't like politics, but he's just terribly good at it. So it's this thing of people who are openly political and openly ambitious are untrustworthy and also men are so much more acceptable as and bright is so boring oh i know he is dish rag there is nothing interesting about bright <laughs> i can't stand him i just i want him to be anything other than what he is. <laughs> like it's just it's so exhausting to watch episodes mm. with him because i just get tired as soon as he starts talking he doesn't have a point of view yeah he's just a gardener who's mm. good at speeches and he's pretty enough mm. but also non-threatening like he's not attractive enough to be a threat he's just you know I think I called him a stale piece of raisin toast served with margarine. Just it's... unsatisfying on every level. And the fact that he almost gets to be the highest, it's its just... And that he doesn't because, like, he... There's, mm. I, just, I just can't. I just can't with him. And the thing is that people don't... Act, like no one likes Bri, as no, far as no, I can tell. No. He has no fans. No one, yeah, no, he has no fans, and yet everyone still thinks that it would be better if he was Kai. Yeah. <laughs> it's just like, is, is someone who does literally nothing actually better? Because, okay, so not to get political and, and to, you know, date this particular episode, but we're, <laughs> President Biden gave a speech last night. Yes. And really, for the past, like, I'm going to say two weeks, he's taken a turn <laughs> and he's decided that he's actually going to fight back and do something. It's very exciting. We're trying to destroy the country, which is shocking. We've been asking for years for the Democrats <laughs> literally anything in response to the horrors that the Republicans have been doing for basically my entire life. And he's being called dark brandon like affectionately like you know our side yeah, is yeah. calling him a straight up villain and doing like you know memes with lightning in his eyes and stuff 
And it's hilarious to me that we're like, finally, we have a villain in charge. <laughs> and so from my perspective, Win is better just by the fact that she's capable of doing anything and having a point of view. Rot. And like, maybe she's wrong, but at least she's convicted right <laughs> and committed to her cause and she has one and she can articulate it whereas Barai, he would have just joined the federation and like given up mm. i kind of wish that i could go back in time and this is going to be a very on-brand statement for me but i wish i could cast jason isaacs as Barail. because i think even in the early 90s he was capable of giving that blandly written character an edge and a subtext and even a tiny bit of sex appeal although frankly 1993 Jason Isaacs was only a little bit sexy but <laughs> okay let's move on to the circle and the siege where we have more Barail. <sighs> <laughs> I mean Jaro at least oh my god I had forgotten that Franklin Jaro was in Deep Space Nine apparently he's uncredited I feel better about the fact that I wasn't supposed to remember that he was that he was in Deep Space Nine. But, you know, he's one of those that guy actors. He plays a certain type of character. A sexy type of character. So I, you know, I knew what to expect from him. <laughs> yeah, exactly. He has the subtext just because of who he is. Right. And the history I have with the actor. Yes. I think he was embroiled in some controversy last year because he said something really stupid about intimacy coordinators. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I would not be surprised if he was a terrible person. Oh, no, no. Frank Langella being a total dick is completely separate from Frank Langella being incredibly attractive and playing the only sexy Bajoran man in the mm. entire series. In the, I know I don't want to say in the entire franchise because I do think Shax on Lower Decks could get it, but in general. And so we have Minister Jaro as sort of the anti-Barial because he has a point of view and he's doing things and he's collaborating with the Cardassians, but... Mm -hmm. hmm. I mean, he's the worst, but when he's on screen, I don't fall asleep. Right! So, so it all works out for me. And then we learn in the second episode of the opening three-parter that he's having an affair with Wynn. And I want to say congratulations to Wynn for having a lover before Kira. Like, not that it's a race, but she is 60, so well done her. And their relationship is so fun to watch because they clearly know each other well, have known each other for a very long time, but she uses his given name and he doesn't use hers. And no. He is coming to her for her basically political endorsement. It's so fascinating and I love it. They have amazing chemistry. I have a whole headcanon about their relationship. And the second she learns that he's collaborating with the Cardassians, she drops him. Because yeah. she she hates the Cardassians as much as she loves power. And that's a lot. Which, you know, points for her. Like, yeah, if yeah. we're if we have a balance, then we get to put in some on that side and the good side because that's the difference. It's one thing to be ambitious for yourself mm. and do whatever it takes, and even if you have to like lie down with dogs. Mm. And she's like, she will not cross that line. She 
like you said, lived her entire life basically under their thumb and and watching them take power mm. over and over and over again from her people. It's like, you know, that would make Jaro one of the Jews who works for the concentration camp people. Yeah, and, yeah. And she is, you don't know, I'm not going to cross that line. Right. Even if it would save me or, or even if it would put me into what I actually want. Even if it would make me queen of the universe. Right. I am not going to, I have my lines. It outs her as someone who maybe she's not on our side and maybe we don't agree with her agenda, mm. but she has her own like she she has her own code of honor. She has integrity. Even if she's not honorable, she has her own code of honor. That is such a great distinction. And people say Wynne doesn't really believe in anything. All she wants is power for herself. And this demonstrates that's not true. She is completely sincere in wanting the best for Bajor. Her idea of what's best for Bajor is not necessarily good. And it is too closely linked with her own personal power, as we see after she becomes Kai. But she does have this very hard line and she does have this bright line of integrity that I think she doesn't get enough credit for. In my head canon, she and Jaro have known each other for a long time and he was not a collaborator during the occupation and they met in a labour camp. You know, his betrayal is a betrayal of her because you'll see the look on Louise Fletcher's <laughs> face. She is trying to cover it up, but she is devastated when she realises that what Kira's saying must be true. Yeah, I think you're right. I think that they do have this history and they were, they both had that line. Mm. And then when it, it became harder for him to have power without collaborating, he took the easy route right. and she's unwilling. That's what I think it is. It's that he was absolutely against it when the Cardassians were in power. Mm. He wouldn't work with them. But once the Cardassians were no longer in power, but they were giving him the offer of like, if you really want power, we know how to do that. Yeah, and we're going to yeah. get you there. Yeah. Then, then he allowed that to happen. I also think he believed that he could use the Cardassians for what he wanted. And maybe right. that would have been right, but that's, that's a moral line to cross. I mean, I don't want to like, go into too much of who Minister Jaro is. Kind of <laughs> random. But, you know, the impression that I got was that he wanted to get one over on the Cardassians. Yes. And he was willing to play their game with them in order mm. to do it. Mm. That's interesting. Yes. That's, that's an interesting option. And the thing is, Jaro and Wynne are both Bajoran supremacists, but Wynne doesn't want to collaborate with anyone, not the Federation, not the Cardassians. If Bajor was capable of standing completely alone, that's what she would push for. And it's interesting mm. that it takes many seasons before she even comes around to Cisco as the emissary, which is an arc I'd love for her. But spoilers for episode two. <laughs> that's what I'm saying. Episode is going to be great, everybody. The only other thing I have to say about that season two three-parter is that Wynne's first scene, she pretends to not know who Kira is when, like, three weeks earlier, Kira was accusing her of attempted murder. And I stand a queen. <laughs> yeah. Mm. Their relationship is the best part of the whole thing. So let's talk about the collaborator. It's really good. <laughs> this is yes. the season two episode in which... 
Vedic Burial and Vedic Wynn fight it out for the role of Kai. And unfortunately, mm. we have to see Burial naked. It was funny because, you know, on Twitter, I was complaining about how Burai is so boring and I can't stand him. And mm-hmm. someone tweeted in response that his main a point, like his main, what's the word? The main thing that he gives the fandom, it's like a word for that, but whatever. The main thing he gives to <laughs> Deep Space Nine is being shirtless and attractive every once in a while. And I responded that I would prefer Adam Driver. <laughs> I think we've already decided to Photoshop Adam Driver in as Odo, but that doesn't mean he can't be shirtless. Is Odo even wearing clothes? And we'll just slip in Jason Isaacs as Burial, and then we're good. Also, why don't they just let Cisco take his shirt off? Because Avery Brooks is a very good-looking man. Avery Brooks is a very good-looking man. And almost always fully dressed. I would absolutely approve. And his voice. I know. I know. Cisco only really had one big scene in this episode, but wow, was I there for the whole thing. I think we overlook Cisco as both a great character and a very attractive character. And yes. I think, you know, black men are both over-sexualized and under-sexualized. And mm-hmm. I would like mm-hmm. to walk a middle line where I deeply love that he is a kind, gentle family man. And also he can get it. He's an intellectual and a scientist and a tactician and very handsome. And in that one scene with Kai Wynn, it's Kai Wynn and Cisco basically dancing around each other mm. to give an inch to the <laughs> other side, where Cisco wants Bajor to join the Federation. And so he is hoping for Barai because he's pretty sure since he's friendly with Barai and, mm. and Kira, and you know he has an in with, yes. with Barai through Kira, that uh, he's pretty sure that that's going to go his way. And... Wynn wants Cisco to like her and to <laughs> approve of her because then people, you know, people see him as this big religious mm, figure, mm. as a leader. You know, she wants his endorsement, basically. She's yeah, trying to get his yeah. endorsement. And they are on the edge of flirty. Yes. And it's, a, it's, it's so disturbing and also amazing <laughs> and perfect. I love the energy in that scene because it's very different from the way that she manipulates Kira. Yes. She's definitely manipulating Cisco the way that she would manipulate Jaro and the way that she eventually manipulates or tries to manipulate Dukat. Like she's definitely pulling out the, I might be a nun, but also I'm a woman. (laughs) I am willing to throw that, you know, into Mm. this particular Mm. interaction. And Cisco is like, ew, like I'm scared. Is what I think is happening, actually happening. He looks really disturbed. It's perfection. Look, I'm not saying it's okay for her to sexually harass the emissary in his workplace, but I also think Cisco maybe missed out on a really amazing time. And I love the complexity of that interaction where she only reluctantly half believes he's the emissary, yet she so desperately needs him to like her because what if he really is the emissary? It's so complicated. And the other thing people say about her is that her faith in the prophets is 
shallow or not real. And I think that's completely untrue. I think she manipulates religion and she manipulates prophecy and the idea of the prophets, but she also believes in them desperately and really struggles with the fact that they have chosen Cisco as their emissary. And does that mean her idea of them is completely wrong? And does that mean she has to reconsider her whole worldview? No, no, the prophets must be wrong. But they can't be wrong. Shit! This is a problem that takes her five seasons to resolve. And I love that. I think that's so interesting. I think she is such a rich and layered character. It's interesting because in this episode, we see Barai's visions like a lot. We see a lot of Barai's visions and they are screwed up and weird and disturbing. Although I I do have to shout out (laughs) to (laughs) Kai Wynn's amazing bedroom hair. Because in the in the really disturbing vision where for reasons unknown <laughs> Bri sees Wynn as his romantic interest and they kiss and it's all bad, mm-hmm. but she has amazing hair. <laughs> amazing hair. And she looks pretty. Yes. Like Kaiwin is not She's striking. She's absolutely striking, but she is not pretty. And in that moment, she is soft and pretty and feminine. And it's just like, what is going on? That's the thing. Watching through this, I realized she is so often sexual in a way that 60, 61-year-old characters don't get to be even now, least of all in the 90s. And fandom perceives it as disgusting and a joke and horrible, but actually it's framed in a really attractive and beautiful way you know she has this long blonde hair that we see when she's in bed she has this lovely smile she's a really beautiful woman and mm-hmm. it's not the show that's asking us to perceive her as horrible her personality leaves a little to be desired but it's it's and i i think it's because she's ambitious and political and a villain that she's allowed to be sexualized this much it's very interesting because like what i'm saying that we see barai's visions throughout we don't see anyone else's in this no. particular episode all his point of view I, I mean the the idea is that he is struggling with his knowledge and his burden and mm-hmm. and all of the things that he is worrying about you know may or may not come out and how he can protect the people that he cares about and if that is more important than protecting Bajor, which I feel like it isn't, but you do you, Beret. <laughs> <laughs> and so, you know, there are all these angsty visions, mm. right? There's super angsty visions about his relationship with Kira and it gets mixed up in his rivalry with Wynn and there's like all this weird stuff going on and we don't we don't know what the prophets are showing her during this whole experience. No, no. It's interesting to look at those visions and it's like, are these religious visions or is this just his subconscious? Or is it like I have a lot of questions <laughs> about what's going on because they're filmed and presented in the same way that all the prophet visions are with that like weird overlay of, of the flurry, you know. Yeah. And the soft lighting and everything's a little bit off and it's presented in the same way but they are very sexual (laughs) they are very 
uh, specific to his personal conflicts and are not telling him something about mm. life or philosophy, but the prophets also do use other, you know, they use the people that you know and the yeah, people that you yeah. care about to tell you messages. So it's, I'm like sitting there going, what is going on with the prophets? <laughs> but what am I supposed to be getting out of this prophets? I really like that ambiguity though, because it's sort of how real religious experiences feel. And I understand that people who have had them often wonder, you know, there is introspection about whether that was your subconscious or a genuine message from God. And right. it's interesting to me that we have a society where people do speak directly to the prophets and people do receive visions. And doesn't it make sense that your dreams and your subconscious present in the same way? Some Federation scientist out there is doing a paper on the impact of the prophets on Bajoran subconscious manifestations. <laughs> so should I talk about Wind and Kira? Please. So they have this amazing scene. They've danced around each other up until this point. They definitely already have a very antagonistic relationship, mostly because, like you said, Kira was on Wind's side until she was outed as a villain, someone who was working against the Bajorans or the Bajorans that Kira is aligned with. Yes. <laughs> and because Kira is very loyal. Hmm. Kira is the type of person who, you know, what's the what's the Pride and Prejudice quote? Like, as soon as you've lost my favor, you've lost it forever. Right, yes. That's it, that's Kira. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Kira is Mr. Darcy, you hear it here first. <laughs> and so they have this scene, which is basically Kira saying, you can't do these things that you're trying to do when you're going to lose and you should stop. You should just accept it and move on because you don't have anything. And Wynne sort of like says, well, I have this information that, mm. that may or may not be true. And I, I'm going to entrust it with you because you don't trust me. And so that means you're the perfect person to go <laughs> investigate for me, which is, you know, Kira becomes her pawn in that moment. Mm. And... Kira doesn't even know that she's become her pawn in that moment because Kira, as well as being very loyal and very forthright, she also, like, she trusts the law and, or, you know, her version of the law, her honor and her, like, what is good and right in her world. And she's had to do that since she was a child. Kira is like Worf in that she wants Bajor to be as good as she is. And right. one of the things she struggles with after the op occupation is the, the Cardassians leave. They no longer have a common enemy. Suddenly they're fighting amongst themselves. And Kira fears a Bajoran civil war almost more than anything else. Whereas Wynne is really reckless in terms of risking civil war. Mm. First in, in the hands of the prophets, which I think would have been the outcome if she had killed Beryl. And later on as Kai and first minister. But I think this is another case where both Kira and Wynne want what's best for Bajor and disagree on what that mm -hmm. is. And that's what's so interesting is that Wynne is right, that Kira is the right person for this job, mm. that she will get the actual truth and she will bring it out regardless of what it is, even if it hurts the people that she cares about in her own personal point of view and what she actually wants. Right. But 
what's amazing about this scene, like that's all interesting. That's all great. But what's amazing about this scene is, you know, Wynn calls everyone my child. Yes. <laughs> but there is a very, like she is fully playing the part of I am the religious mentor and you are my little acolyte yes. and you know i'm bringing you into my fold and i am giving you this task to prove yourself and then you will be a good person and a, you know a member of my family mm. and really pushing this i am the mother i'm like mother superior and you are my daughter who is a rebel and is doing the <laughs> wrong things and is going against the code but i'm going to give you this opportunity to prove yourself and then you'll be on my side and everything will be great and the same way that she was flirting with cisco she's playing on this idea that she somehow subconsciously realizes that kira really really wants a mother figure kira yes. desperately wants a maternal mentor like it's great to have friends and it's great to have mentors but what she wants is what she didn't get right which is a mother yeah it's something that's missing in kira's life and win is fully inserting herself into that and it just twists everything up in Kira. I, intellectually, she's sitting here going, I hate this woman <laughs> and I disagree with her on everything and I don't trust her and she's wrong, but her emotions, her emotional state and like her subconscious is saying, yes, uh, this is what I want. I want you to praise me. You know, I want that feeling. I want to be called my child and for it to actually mean something. Yes. And that makes Wynne's fate ultimately more tragic because, like Kira's biological mother, she is raped by Ducat, who eventually kills her. It's horrific. Spoilers, but our final episode about Wynne's fall is going to be mostly shouting, because that's fucked up. <laughs> because it's bad. Right. But I love... The relationship because it continues and that's why i'm super excited for episode two because that's when we really get to see kira realizing what win is doing and realizing that she doesn't hate it <laughs> you know 90 percent of the time she's against win but that 10 percent is like oh no she has a point i kind of agree with her and i kind of like want her to <laughs> I want to be, you know, within her confidence and I kind of like mm. this and and she hates it. It's really great for Kira and it says a lot about Wynne. And I think Wynne is more interesting as Kira's dark side than the Intendant because Wynne and Kira are very similar and they're both very black and white in their thinking. They both love Bajor and hate Cardassians and they both want Bajor to stand on its own, whether that's as an independent planet or as a member of the Federation in good standing, eventually. And Kira, obviously her life and her path took a, a very different course to win, but she sees the similarities and I think they worry her. Right, yeah. I mean, to throw Game of Thrones, I don't know why, yeah. I, I mean, I guess House of Dragons is why Game of Thrones is in my mind. But in the later seasons, both Arya and Sansa are sort of like, I kind of agree with Cersei sometimes, and I really don't like that about myself. But also, 
she's right about this particular thing and then that's how i have to be in order to you know get to my goal and i think that kira has that same realization it's like i really don't like winadami and i really don't want to agree with her ever but also she's right about the way that we are being treated in this particular situation and i can't ignore that she's right about the way we have to act in order to get out of it i really love that kind of juxtaposition of i know you're a villain and i know that i don't want to be like you but in order to get what i want i have to be a little like you <laughs> and what does that say about me you know and the irony of the title of the collaborator obviously it's about the question is vedic Burial a collaborator and the twist is actually it was kai opaka so maybe her protege vedic Burial was not a good candidate for Kai all along, like maybe the right Vedic one. But it's an episode about Kira collaborating with Wynne to uncover the yes. truth. And I guess Kira doesn't feel great about that, but actually they're a really good team. They remind me a lot of Vimes and Veterinary in the Discworld series, in the watch line of it, where Veterinary is very political and has 85 motivations and some of them are probably shady and Vimes is this forthright obnoxious lower class man who will go forward and uncover the truth no matter how politically inconvenient it is. I love that vibe and I love seeing it with two women. I really like your comment that maybe Kai Win should have won because she's more actually more like Kai Obaka. <laughs> <laughs> That's kind of great. I love it. I didn't look at it that way, but I mean, the whole reveal, like, again, it was sort of like, oh, Barai, you were almost interesting. But, yeah. But then it wasn't true. <laughs> and it was actually about you saving Kaiopaka's reputation. And would Kaiopaka actually want that? Like, would she want her rival to get into power no. just to save her secret? Absolutely not. Kayapaka would be like super angry about this whole situation. And I just want to say she is alive and effectively immortal on that planet in the Delta Quadrant. They could pop by and ask. Like, I assume she's getting the news from Beja and going, what? When is Kai? What the fuck? <laughs> <laughs> this idea that a woman would make the decision to allow her son to die for the greater good and then not want anyone to know about it. It's like, no, that's not how it goes. That's the thing. The greater good in this case, from Kaya Parker's point of view, would have been Burial winning the election. So, yeah, she would sacrifice her son. She would sacrifice her own reputation. And that's really interesting. That makes me wish we'd see more of Kaya Parker, frankly. But yeah, obviously, Wynne is the more interesting Kai from a storytelling point of view. Mm. But... Yeah, I saw something online where the writer's room were discussing, you know, okay, so Burai's going to be Kai, and they were like, well, it would be more interesting if, if Wynne was Kai, but we wouldn't do that. And they're like, well, why wouldn't we do that? Mm. You know, it gives us the conflict. It gives yeah. us the drama yeah. on a silver platter. Why would we choose Mr. Boring over here? <laughs> and it was interesting because it, the, the person who was talking about this quote from the showrunners was upset 
they they were like, no, that was terrible. We don't want Kai Win to be in charge. We didn't want her to win. She just ruined everything. From a storytelling point of view, it's like, yeah, that's that that's was the point. point. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that's exactly what she was supposed to do. Since I've been a bit <laughs> critical of the DS Nine writers in this episode, and also always, I will say that is one of the best decisions they have ever made in the entire run of the series. That and killing Burial and life support, which was also a last minute choice. They realized how boring he was and how no one cared. I don't think I don't I don't I'm think so it's sorry. even that. I am so sorry. Especially as I am on record as saying that Kira Barai is better than Kira Odu. And so I feel really terrible for how much I dislike Barai. But it's like at least he is an Odo. Like even in this no, episode. No, no. She said, she said, I love him, Odo, and Odo got, like, sad, and I was like, no, no, I hate this. But also, she's, like, really horrified at the idea that he might be a collaborator, and meanwhile, Odo, the collaborator, is sitting right next to her. DS9 just did so badly by all of its women, by Kira, by Dax, by Dax again, by Kai Win. I guess everyone but Lita just had a really terrible arc in the end mm-hmm. anyway it's just painful yeah. <laughs> it's just painful so yeah so i'm sorry that i hate barai and that i hate Kiroto even more i'm sorry all of the fans that i'm annoying that's just my opinion you again you do you <laughs> Kira and Dex, Kira and Jadzia Dex had more chemistry mm-hmm. talking about the lotion <laughs> in, in the circle than any man that Kira ever even looked at. Yeah, my problem is that if I were to ship Kira with a man and she does seem to be extremely enthusiastically heterosexual for some reason, the only man mm-hmm. I can see her with is the version of Prime Loka who exists in my head. Also, this had this nothing to do with Wynn, mm. but I have to say that the fact that In the Hands of the Prophets starts with Keiko and Miles oh, being God. really incompatible as a couple, I just, I really, I'm distraught. I want to say that it feels really, really dated for Keiko to be giving Miles a hard time for having a work wife, but I have been reading Best of reddit updates and apparently it is extremely wrong for a married person to have a friend of the opposite sex and that can only lead to cheating so maybe it's not that dated but either way it's stupid i was watching and i was sort of like kira didn't even really care it was more like miles had this Mm. idea that kira was angry at him for feelings that he was having because he knew that he was having those feelings but she like whatever the whole thing was bad and then the fact that she was the assassin and that i mean that that episode the the final scenes of the episode are filmed so strangely and so i'm like what what show have we started what have we landed into here because this is absurd on every level and yeah i guess it was the season finale and they wanted to make it dramatic i guess like it's a it's a great episode i love it but it is a particularly bad episode for keiko just not a great look on any level also miles i know i just said that you're allowed to have a work wife but don't flirt so much with your work wife like 
Well, that's what I'm saying. He felt guilty because he was, in fact, guilty. Yeah. But Keiko yeah. didn't care. And yet, fandom hates Keiko for things like this. It's just weird to me. And so I just had to put just, it out there no, that no. Keiko deserves better. She should have left Miles, you know, basically then and realized that she just, you know, she's worth more than, than what yeah. she's given. So, yeah, do you want to say anything more about fi final thoughts on Wynne's first, you know, her first experience. Just that it's wild to me that making her Kai was a last minute decision because she embodies the role so well that I kept forgetting to call her Vedic win instead of Kai win in this episode. Oh, she's... yeah. Yeah. When I was tweeting, it was like, I can't call her Kai win because that's not who she is yet. <laughs> Thank you for listening to Antimatterpod. You can find our show notes at antimatterpod.com, including links to our social media, credits for our theme music, and transcripts of our episodes, though unfortunately we're getting increasingly further behind because the software got worse and worse and worse. You can also follow us on Twitter, Facebook, Tumblr, and Instagram, all at antimatterpod, and write to us at mail at antimatterpod.com. If you like us, leave a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you consume your podcasts. The more reviews, the easier it is for new listeners to find us. And join us in two weeks when we'll be discussing Wynne's reign as Kai and, briefly, First Minister. <laughs> All hail the Queen. 